And I think that joy is also a really important mechanism for doing what I think is like kind of the role of environmental advocates right now, which is to make the climate movement as irresistible as it can possibly be um, so that we can attract as many people into this movement as possible. And so it has to be joyful. It has to be grounded in joy and not in grief or fear because those types of emotions just burn us out. Like, And that's not to say that we can't feel those things, but we should also be grounded in an understanding that we are doing this work out of a place of love um, for ourselves, love for our communities, love for this planet. Um, And a large part of that is connecting it to joy and just recognizing that the point that we're in right now is not the end. Hello, and welcome to Climate with Kiana, a podcast that explores topics of climate, energy, and sustainability through a framework of joy and justice. I'm your host, Kiana Michon, a climate justice and clean energy advocate. This show brings you conversations with passionate people working in climate, and together we explore the many exciting and intersectional solutions to one of the greatest challenges of our time. So if you've ever felt overwhelmed by the climate crisis, these conversations are for you. Whether you're already a climate nerd or just climate curious, join me each week in an exploration of climate justice solutions. Let's cultivate hope and joy and vision new possibilities together. Welcome back. In today's episode, I spoke with an amazing environmental educator and strategist, Ariel King, about her recent experience at COP28 in Dubai as one of the organizers of the Entertainment and Culture Pavilion and Hope House. But first, we started our conversation exploring how radical joy and imagination impacts her climate work and activism. Why are radical joy and radical imagination important in climate work? What were the important and historic outcomes of COP28? What are some of the wins and shortcomings of the negotiations? And how do we continue to cultivate joy and hope even in the midst of high-pressure and high-stakes international negotiations? This is a special episode to recap COP28, and so it may be a little longer than usual. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this discussion about COP28 and radical joy. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Um... Yeah, I'm Arielle King. I would say these days I consider myself an environmental educator and strategist whose work kind of sits at the intersection of art, culture, and climate. So doing a little bit of everything in that space and so much of my work lately has revolved around the projects that I just completed um, in Dubai for COP28. But yeah, I mean, um, a little bit of background. I have you know, a background in environmental law and policy. I got my law degree focused on environmental justice and civil rights law about two years ago, um, have since supported the development of organizations, entities, campaigns, um, help with like a lot of media and communications work in the climate space. So yeah, just quite literally a little bit of everything. And I just feel really grateful for the opportunity to to be here on this podcast. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And I really resonate with the work you do. And I think having that policy knowledge and then applying that to that intersection of art and communications um, and storytelling is really important. And I've 
you know, done work in that space as well. And I appreciate the work you do. A lot of your work connects joy and hope and storytelling mm-hmm. to climate solutions, yeah. which is so important. And you had your show, The Joy Report, which I really loved and took a lot of inspiration from. Um, so I'd love to hear from you why joy and this concept of radical joy is so crucial and important in climate movement building. Sure. Um, I think that joy is one of the few you know, resources that we have that can sustain us through this climate work and just understanding the gravity of the situation, but also the the need for an emphasis on love and community care and like local action. Um, so I think that, you know, when in creating the joy report, the podcast, we really focused on the value of storytelling, the value of amplifying our stories, but also the value of sharing positive climate solutions in getting people to become involved and feel like they can see themselves in this movement. Um, something, you know, there's all of this research that indicates that people are the most anxious about climate that they've ever been in human history. Um, you know, young people are experiencing climate anxiety at extreme levels for the first time ever. We are seeing, you know, medical professionals and psychiatrists, psychologists, all of these people have to be trained in how to equip people with the tools necessary to cope with climate anxiety. And so we're in a very tumultuous state when it comes to just how we're interacting with the news that we are receiving about the climate crisis. Um, When it's reported on at all, it's almost always negative. It's almost always about the doom and gloom. And so we created the Joy Report as an opportunity to provide an antidote to that and to provide people with very tangible, um, you know, achievable mechanisms and strategies to uh, take action at a local and and at a larger level, but also to demonstrate that solutions have always been in the works and that there are really meaningful things that are taking place that are actually moving the needle towards a, a just and sustainable world. And so the more we're able to showcase those types of stories, the more I believe that the more people are involved and are willing to be involved in this movement. And I think that joy is also a really important mechanism for doing what I think is like kind of the role of environmental advocates right now, which is to make the climate movement as irresistible as it can possibly be um, so that we can attract as many people into this movement as possible. And so it has to be joyful. It has to be grounded in joy and not in grief or fear because those types of emotions just burn us out. Like, And that's not to say that we can't feel those things, but we should also be grounded in an understanding that we are doing this work out of a place of love um, for ourselves, love for our communities, love for this planet. Um, And a large part of that is connecting it to joy and just recognizing that the point that we're in right now is not the end. And yeah, just like being able to connect with other people and to like demonstrate all of the positive things happening is just like one of the most necessary things that we can do in this moment. I love what you said about making the climate movement irresistible. Enjoy being a part of that. And that does make me think about that intersection of art and creativity and climate solutions. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to expand upon what we were just saying about radical joy. And like, can you talk a little bit about that intersection of 
joy and radical imagination and hope and Afrofuturism, because I think it's such a rich topic when we're thinking about making the movement irresistible and juicy and and exploring creative outlets to express the, the complex emotions that we're all experiencing as we're living through this. Absolutely. I mean, storytelling has always been a focal point of Black culture, right? And so like in the movement for Afrofuturism, there is an element of unearthing the past, um, being able to reflect the present and also to showcase what a future could look like where we are in our like most full, beautiful, loved, held, liberated selves. And so, um, I mean, and that is also the work of radical imagination. It's like existing in the world as it is and daring to believe that something better is possible. And yeah, I, I feel I believe that black people, like as a culture, we have been existing as, you know, I guess ideologies or at least examples of radical imagination forever, like literally forever, the way that we have had to endure some of the most awful, treacherous circumstances, but believing that the next generation wouldn't have to endure or wouldn't have to struggle as hard and being able to put in the work to try to make that a reality, that has always been a part of our lived experience, especially in the United States. And so, um, I mean, it's all deeply connected. And I believe that when we're thinking about radical imagination in climate and in like the climate action, climate activism space, that is the only way that we are going to be able to create new worlds is if we're actually like talking about them, speaking about them, thinking about what they would feel like, um, identifying like what some of the rules might be like in that new world, what things we don't want to see, but what things must be present and really articulating and getting very clear on what the present or what the future can look like. Um, Because otherwise we will be stuck in this feeling of, depression and um, just feel like stunned into an action if we are not thinking about possibilities and like what better worlds could look like. And so I'm always inspired by the artists and the writers who are helping us reimagine new, better worlds. For more of our conversation on radical imagination, joy, and Afrofuturism, stay tuned for some bonus content in the weeks ahead. From here, we talked about Ariel's recent experience at COP28 in Dubai. The Conference of the Parties, also known as the COPs, are annual meetings hosted by the United Nations as a meeting for the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The UNFCCC is the global treaty to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions, which was established in 1992. The COP conferences are the largest global climate negotiations. The first COP was held in 1995, and the COP rotates between countries in the different UN-recognized global regions. Important international agreements to address climate change are agreed upon at each COP through the consensus of the negotiators of all the parties to the treaty. Historic agreements have come out of the COPs over the years, such as the Paris Accords or Paris Agreement in 2015. Let's get into all about this year's 2023 COP28. Welcome back yes. from COP28. Thank you. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about yeah. there. Obviously, I, I did not attend, but was following along to the best of my ability. Um, I guess first question was, was this your first COP? Um, so it was my second COP. I went to okay, um, COP26 yeah. in Glasgow, um, which, 
was a very different experience for a lot of different reasons. I, I think just like mm-hmm. sociopolitically, it was a different space that we were in, like the ability to protest in the streets um, in Scotland versus like not being able to do such a thing in the UAE um, was interesting. And just like, I don't know, there were just a lot of differences. And it's been noted that this is the largest cop there's ever been. Um, and it really showed like everything was like very separated. Um, you know, there were all of these pavilions, there were all of these things that were taking place. Um, and it was very disjointed. I mean, a lot of this stuff was like in buildings, very separate from everything else. And so I think one of the things that the venue in Scotland afforded us was the ease of access to all of these different places um, so that, you know, you might accidentally wander into an activation or an event or a, a panel discussion that you wouldn't have ordinarily and you learn a lot. And so there just like wasn't a lot of space for that to take place. Um Yeah. And just like in terms of accessibility, it was just like hard to walk everywhere and it was very hot. And so, you know, I, there's, there's a lot going on, Um, but that was definitely like (laughs) one of the first reactions um, that I had was just how enormous the venue was and how many people were, were involved this year. I know accessibility has always been an issue at COPS, but it does clearly vary based on the host country and the venue but clearly it's a very complex space in that there are a lot of positive things that come out of the cops yeah. and, you know, there was historic outcomes to this one. Um, and there's massive challenges, frustrations, sort of just rehashing out the same limitations of yeah. the system. You, I know you were very involved in organizing two major events, the inaugural entertainment and culture pavilion and then also one of the organizers for the hope house Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about what both of these were um were how it went and um what was your vision and intention going into the cop sure um so i'll start with that last question because i think it grounds like explaining both Mm -hmm. of the entities that i was involved in so my intention for cop 28 was to support the cultivation of spaces that centered wellness, justice, art, and joy. Um, and like, and, and I feel really gratified that I was able to do that. Um, and yeah, and, and that also felt very different than my first cop where I was very alone. I didn't really have a plan. So just like going in with a lot of grounding, made a world of difference for me in terms of like my safety and just like understanding my, um, my place there and just like understanding what my role was and what I was supposed to be there to do. So, um, yeah, very grateful for that opportunity. So I'll start with Hope House. Um, so the Hope House was a side event venue that was brought to Dubai by the, um, youth led climate communications agency time for better. And this is the second time that Time for Better has hosted a Hope House during a COP. Um, And it was beautiful. There were, you know, multiple days of activations and events and programs with topics that ranged from the energy transition. We had a day actually on the energy transition and 
Um, that included like conversations about nuclear, which I learned a lot about nuclear um, during that session. I, I feel like a lot of people in the environmental space are either adamantly against or like very uncertain about nuclear. And I feel like I got a lot of my questions answered um, by like nuclear engineers through the like um, Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, so that was yeah. one aspect. I definitely... <laughs> I'll say I definitely have my thoughts on nuclear. Sure. I was actually at an event with a lot of clean energy professionals and we were having some like arguments about nuclear and that mm-hmm. it is, it's contentious it in the environmental space. Yeah. And, no, it um, is. Um, and I think- I guess like, without getting too much into my hot take, <laughs> I'm like, how many how many wild hot takes should I start throwing out here on the podcast? I, I don't mean, know. Your podcast, you should but, yeah. throw out as many as you'd um, like. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm like a little shy too, you know, as I'm- <laughs> just starting the show but um i think the the short version is that i think nuclear does have an important role to play in the energy transition as zero carbon base load power yeah um not to minimize its risks or the history of environmental justice with it in any way but i do think that it's complex it's politically contentious and it sometimes i think gets more negativity than it deserves. Yeah, um, it's it's a fascinating topic. I think um, there are a lot of environmental justice concerns, and I brought a lot of them up to the folks who were at the nuclear event. I think it's really important to um, to critique all of these solutions and just like recognize that we can't just focus on one solution in order to like create the change that's necessary for this movement. Um, and I think the phasing out of fossil fuels and our tra- transition to renewable energy requires a diversity of resources, a diversity of thought, and like a diversity of mechanisms. And so I was excited to see like the nu- mm-hmm. nuclear be a part of the conversation um, so heavily this year during COP. Yeah. I just wanted to say really quickly about your comment about diversity of solutions. I, yeah. I like the analogy, which... I don't remember where I heard this originally, so I'm not taking credit for this analogy, but that we need our energy system to be like a well-balanced diet. Mm, I like that. That it's really about a diversity of resources and having that flexibility and resiliency that comes with, with a diversity. And every technology and solution has a shadow. Nothing is perfect, which is further... Absolutely. ...furthers the need to have a balance of you know, resources that have different pros and cons. Totally. Yeah. Um, and that's so real. And I think, you know, something that I was talking to somebody about recently was the fact that like, you know, 10 years ago, no one would have ever thought that people were criticizing or would be criticizing solar as like a viable solution or like integration into like, you know, our renewable energy grids and energy systems. Um, we, I don't think we could have imagined there being so much wind and like, you know, wind turbines around that, like people are now trying to oppose their construction. NIMBY, which stands for Not In My Backyard, is an opposition movement of the siting of infrastructure projects close to homes and residential areas. NIMBYism has heavily impacted the energy industry, in particular wind energy and large-scale solar developments. NIMBYism raises important questions about land rights, community rights, health and safety, the power of governments and private companies, 
and environmental justice. How do we balance the needs of residential communities and the collective need for the expansion of infrastructure? These are challenges that will continue to play out across the globe throughout the energy transition. And I think that that shows the power of public opinion and also shows the um, importance of time. I, I think, um, you know, we, we talk about this 2030 target being like a really momentous marker, and it is. Um, and then I also hear people talking about how like time is of the essence and, you know, we don't have any time. Seven, seven years isn't enough time to like create any change. But I think about all of the technological advances we've seen in the last seven years. I think about our, the societal advances we've seen, the policy advancements. I think there's been such tremendous progress from seven years ago to now that there's no choice but for there to be like really impactful progress um, over the next seven years, especially with it now being such a direct and concerted effort to commit to climate solutions. Yeah, I, I just think there's there's so much space for progress um, over the next seven years as we are heading towards this like critical tipping point of 2030. Um, I think that there have been like so many tremendous advancements in technology, environmental law and policy, in reform, in structures, and in just understanding um, when it comes to justice and collaboration from seven years ago that I feel like very confident that there's going to be like more really positive action um, that happens over these next seven years, especially now that it's a more concerted effort because so many people now recognize the need for and the sense for, of urgency that's required. So I'm staying hopeful. Um, I think the, the it's very interesting because, you know, the language of like the just transition, it was used a lot during COP. Um, and the like draft negotiations, like the draft final negotiations that came out maybe two, three days before the last day of COP had no mention of the just transition, had no mention of phasing out fossil fuels, had no mention of any of those things that, you know, the, the COP president and like multiple world leaders had been kind of alluding to like would be included and also that is actually required to like commit to real climate action. And so um, there was a, a massive campaign to ensure that there was at least an acknowledgement of fossil fuels in the final negotiations. And that was achieved, um, which many people are now considering, you know, the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. Um I don't know if I would take it that far. Like, sure. Like, I think it is a huge deal that this is the first time that like a phase out of or a transition away from fossil fuels has been acknowledged um, at a, a COP. Um, it's frightening that it took 28 years for that to take place. Um, and just like thinking about like what progress is required, I think even with this like very historic addition of that language to the document, there are still like a tremendous amount of shortcomings like for these final negotiations and a lot of what's required will still take a lot of time. And a lot of the like frontline nations don't, don't have time. And so like, what would it look like to like really meaningfully engage with support and hold um, the the nations that are most at risk and who have experienced the most 
tremendous loss already. Um, how do we like support them and hold them and make sure that they are um, adapting and also mitigating as much as possible? Um, one of the other like really meaningful outcomes that came out of COP this year was the loss and damages fund, um, which is also like on paper very momentous and like very exciting, but there are also like really big shortcomings. The Loss and Damage Fund is a new UN fund that was established last year at COP27 with the intention to provide monetary aid to countries in the global south to address the unavoidable and growing impacts from climate change. Countries that have contributed the most to the climate crisis have a moral responsibility to pay for the loss and damages in countries that have contributed the least emissions yet bear the heaviest burdens of the negative impacts of climate change. Global financing of climate mitigation and adaptation continue to fall short by billions of dollars. So the hope is that this newly created loss and damage fund will help to fill some of the gaps in global climate financing. COP28 was the first time that countries were asked to pledge and commit financial contributions to the fund. You know, people have advocated for this for so long. And so I'm really excited that it now exists, that there actually is a loss and damage fund. Um, one of the pitfalls of the loss and damage fund is that it only helps pay for damages that are already caused by the climate crisis, um, which means that it is very reactionary um, and not preventative. And so there isn't funding that's going directly towards mitigation, adaptation, um, and all of that really necessary work that a lot of these like small island nations and other like frontline communities and countries so desperately need. It's also important to note that the funds that are accessed, they're alone and not a grant. And so, um, and for some of the like um, challenges here, I know, and like for some of the issues, um, some there's an expectation of matching some of the funds. And so it's just, there's so many barriers to entry and, you know, accessing these funds might mean that a country is going into even more debt um, to try to recover from a climate catastrophe. So it's it's tremendous progress. We're really excited about it, but I I am worried. Um, also, it's just not nearly enough money um, for what's required. So so far, um, what was committed to at COP was like six hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, but researchers have estimated that countries need anywhere between two hundred and ninety to $580 billion every year um, by 2030 in order to like actually support the countries who have been most harmed and will continue to be most harmed by the climate crisis. And so that's a quite a large discrepancy. And I just think about like all of the other uses of funds that we're seeing right now um, by the countries that should be committing the most money to the loss and damages fund. I think about you know, money going toward funding wars and money that's going directly from taxpayer dollars to subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Like fossil fuel subsidies in the last year have reached the trillions in the United States. And like, I just think about what that money could be used for on a national and also on a global scale um, to commit to really like collective community care and restoration and like mitigation and adaptation efforts. And there's there's just like a lot to be thought about. There's a lot to consider and there's a lot that still has to be done. I share your concerns in terms of 
the progress being great that we have the loss and damage fund yeah. now and the contributions that have been put in are a drop in the bucket. I believe the U.S. committed only $17 million, yep. which is frankly insulting. Um, and as you said, like small island nations, many communities, we don't have the time. And then you were mentioning a lot of this being very react- reactionary, yeah. right? Yeah. Of like, okay, how do we re- react to now it's essentially a disaster because we didn't prevent it? And how do we approach this in a way that is preventative and caring, yeah. right? So that the reactionary part ends up being the smallest part of that equation. Obviously, we're like so deep into the climate crisis. But also, yeah, these this idea about, I think, where the money is going, like when we're looking at the budgets of countries, right? I feel like these budgets are essentially moral documents and the scale of funding we need is so great. I feel like there's a misunderstanding in the sense of like, on a, I guess, more national example, like the IRA, that's billions of dollars. That's not going to cover the entire decarbonization of the US. It's like two thirds of it, right? And so, yes, these costs seem high, but it's higher if we don't actually address the problem because then it will get worse and the costs will be higher. And countries all the time are going into debt for worse things. (laughs) Um, Like you said, that subsidies are at an all-time high for fossil fuels. So it's like, how do we actually have more sort of ethical value alignment of where countries are allocating their money? Because that actually says, this is how much we care about the human lives of our countries, of our neighboring countries, of global communities. And that alignment isn't there. This year's COP was important for many reasons, one of them being that it is the first year of the global stock take. The global stock take is a check that will occur every five years moving forward to assess the progress of all countries' nationally determined contributions, or NDCs. These NDCs, which were established in the Paris Accord, along with the global stock take, are national targets for greenhouse gas emissions reductions that are set by each country that is party to the agreement. While NDCs remain critical to the success of the Paris Accord, unfortunately, they are non-binding legally and therefore unenforceable. I asked Ariel to share her experience of the conversation and atmosphere around the global stock take on the ground at COP28. Yeah, um, I mean, there were protests like to ensure that there was like specific language added like an acknowledgement of fossil fuels in the global stock take is really necessary and the fact that that was like not included the fact that you know there there were just like all of these challenges there was a initially there was supposed to be a lot more strict language about coal for example and like in the final um you know, negotiations and the outcomes for the global stock take, it like weakened the coal phase out language to from like rapidly phasing out unabated coal and limitations on permitting to just maintaining or mentioning efforts toward the phase down of unabated coal. And so like so much of the language got watered down at the very last minute. Um, and yet that was still considered a win. And so it, it's just so hard. Um, I, and I think, one of my long-term gripes with the UN just like as an entity is the non-binding power that they have. Um, Just the fact that, you know, countries can sign on an agreement of things. They can, you know, say no, they can be in opposition and, 
or they can decide to not sign on. They can back out um, part way, as we saw the U.S. do when Trump was in office for the Paris Agreement. And so, you know, there's there's no real accountability that takes place. And that's why the global stock take was so important, um, because it was a, a mechanism to ensure that we are like effectively analyzing what's necessary. But as you mentioned, I mean, it's it's hard because there's no requirement for reporting. There's no like consistent measure for doing so. I, you know, the UN was designed to be an entity that was supposed to create and be like a collaboration force and source like amongst all of the countries of the world. Or I wish that their power had more strength. Um, and I And I want there to be like, greater accountability. I want a lot of these things to be binding. Um, I want there to be like stronger commitments. I want there to be all of these things because we, we really don't have the time to just sit around and like talk about these things anymore. I mean, like the fact that the loss and damages fund, it took this long for that to like actually be on the table is such a challenge. Um, and you know, like I said, this was the biggest cop that there's ever been. And, you know, multiple activists have talked about the fact that moving forward, cops should not be getting bigger. We should be like dialing down the amount of people who are at these global negotiations so that people can focus on what's happening in their countries and really like look inward and like hold their like elected officials and the leaders and people in power more accountable so that real action can take place it has a lot to do with what we were talking about and just like the value of community and understanding like who your community is and like what community you have the most influence with to be able to like help hold um, those in power accountable. I asked Ariel to share about the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a proposed treaty to end the expansion of oil, coal, gas, and transition away from fossil fuels. The treaty has been endorsed by about a dozen countries, most of them small island nations. It has also been endorsed by hundreds of elected officials, local city governments, and NGOs across the globe. Advocacy for this treaty has been taking place for several years, and COP28 saw Colombia join as the first major nation to endorse the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. During Dubai's COP28, they were the largest com- country to sign on. So in addition to yeah. Colombia signing um, during COP, Samoa um, formally joined like a, a block of nation states sense. who are seeking a negotiating mandate for a treaty. Um, yeah, like Colombia actually signed on and like called for the treaty at the high level party event that happened. And then, um, Palau also, um, signed on. And so, yeah. And like prior to that, there was like a lot of movement and action from states that happened like during COP 20, 27 <laughs> in, in Egypt last yeah. year. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, there's just like, I don't know. It's really interesting. I was helping um, with like a social media campaign about the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty over a year ago. And I feel like there was nowhere near the amount of momentum as we're seeing right now um, with it. And it's just been like really exciting and inspiring to see because in addition to like states um, and countries like making sure that their voices were heard. There's also like individual elected officials who have signed on um, and like state heads of state ministers, special envoys from all over the world who are like making it their mission to hold their governments accountable. 
So it's been like very exciting um, and very, I don't know, I think the momentum for this is really great right now. As we explore the many challenges of COP28, I asked Ariel to share what her experience was of the almost 2,000 fossil fuel lobbyists who were present at the COP, as well as the role of climate justice protests and ceasefire protests that occurred during the negotiations. The wars across the globe are heartbreaking human rights atrocities, and militaries remain some of the largest emitters globally. Thus, protests remain an active part of the many calls to action at COP. As it relates to the fossil fuel lobbyists, I will say, I think online there was a lot greater reaction to it than in person. I think because everything was so spread out, I don't think most of us even saw like fossil fuel lobbyists um, present, which is a challenge. But I know that quite a bit of... um, you know, youth climate activists and other folks had like stickers that we added to our badges that like said not paid for by the fossil fuel industry. Um, and we we made very clear and, and something else I think along that same vein was just like the really beautiful acts of solidarity, like in what people were wearing um, in support of a ceasefire and in support of the people of Palestine. I thought it was just really exciting to be able to see like this global amount of solidarity. So yeah, like the biggest protest that we had inside of COP um, was calling for a ceasefire and calling for just climate justice in every sense of the word. And a lot of the chants had to do with, you know, human rights being required for climate justice and how, you know, this is a, a human rights violation and a, an environmental violation and every other type of violation imaginable um, and how, you know, our, our liberation is wrapped up in everyone else's. And so there were a lot of um, people from all over the world who talked about atrocities that were happening in their own places or the ways that historically their land has been destroyed and how they've seen this pattern before in their own homes and on their own lands um, and what that looks like and what it feels like and what it means to actually like stand and to and to resist. And so it was just like really powerful. Um, and then like throughout, you saw a lot of people like with their like watermelon jewelry and the people were wearing their scarves. And it was just, um, that was exactly what I expected to see. And I like, I'm really glad that people like lived up to my expectation. I talked to a few people who were like, Oh, like I'm surprised at how many people are like showing solidarity in in this place. And I was just like, why I think like the, the global climate movement, like the people, (laughs) like the climate justice movement as we know it, like, of course, we're going to advocate for the liberation of all people, right? Like, of course, we're going to advocate for a free Palestine and for land back and all of these things, because those are what like the foundation of this climate justice movement are, which is grounded in the move, like the environmental justice movement in the U.S., which was created as a direct result of the civil rights movement. Like it's always been about people and about equal rights, equal access, sovereignty, self-determination, like all of these things have always existed in the movement for climate justice. And so of course we're going to be supporting like a free and and liberated Palestine. And so that was beautiful um, and really meaningful. I would say in addition to that, I talked to a lot of people who talked about their like feelings leading up to COP, like especially just recognizing that the president 
of this cop um, is aligned with, you know, a ginormous oil company. um, And the fact that it was like the actual location of cop is in like such a huge place for oil um, and just like, you know, the petro industry. um, And Mm -hmm. the fact that Dubai as a city specifically was like built on oil money. Right. And like, you know, yes. and, and I've been like reading about Dubai for like over 10 years and it's just like one of the most fascinating places. And like, I went to like, one of the, the like Burj Khalifa, like one of the, the tallest building in the world. And I like, I looked down from the 125th floor and I was just like, it is so gray here. Like the fact that this city is so new and they had the option and the opportunity to like meaningfully create like worlds and cities in a way that is like just inclusive and green and like really be imaginative with what that could look like and didn't like hurts me every single day. And so like being there and seeing that in person really just like blew my mind. And it's so interesting because now like Dubai is at a point that like they're planning and developing a city within a city that has like all of these like green elements and all of this design and being our architects of the future, how we're crafting these solutions is so critical. And I've been really thinking more about design and all its facets and how it contributes to our solution building. So I think it is really fascinating to see how different places and spaces approach design in specific historical, political contexts Mm -hmm. and allow that to like inform how critical it is to think about these pieces as we're crafting solutions. Because I went in with very specific intentions. um, It's just like, I understand how these negotiations happen. I understand. And, you know, there are so many climate activists um, who talked about like coming to COP every year and just anticipating heartbreak and like anticipating having to like pour out your heart and soul um, for there to be like very minimal results that are leading to like, real change. Um, I also think it's really interesting that, you know, a a conference that's focused on sustainability um, doesn't ensure that there is like sustainability amongst the attendees. I feel like um, it is one of the few times where like, no matter who you talk to, they're outrageously exhausted because they've been like in meetings running around doing stuff for like all day, you know, most people are getting like four or five hours of sleep. If that, um, people aren't eating on their like standard schedules. Like we're just not taking care of ourselves during this time. Um, and then we're expected to like show up and like be our best selves and like advocate on our own behalves, like time and time again. And it, I don't know. I just, I find that so troubling. And so that's why I was just one so grateful to be a part of like these two entities that were like focused on making sure that we were um, healing ourselves and making sure that we were well in the midst of all of that. Um, Like at the Entertainment and Culture Pavilion, which was in the Blue Zone. The Blue Zone refers to the area at COP where all official meetings, negotiations, sessions, press conferences, and other events take place. The zone is managed by UN Climate Change and can only be accessed by admitted observers, accredited press, party delegations, and heads of state. We had daily mindfulness practices, um, you know, that happened and were led by people and cultural workers and spiritual guides from all over the world. And it was so necessary to just have like a space to breathe and to meditate and to stretch. Um, And 
that's just like, I, I hope and my hope and dream for COP moving forward is that some of the love that we poured into that space kind of permeates throughout and that there's like spaces for wellness throughout COP moving forward. I don't know. I I just, I hope moving forward that that is like something that we see more of because there is such a great need for it, especially like when people are, you know, pouring their hearts and souls out and talking about the harms that their homes are experiencing and the, the crises that are, and the, the risks. And, you know, um, I heard from multiple people who talked about how much of a risk it was for them to even come to COP and how they spent days getting there. And, you know, they left their villages or their homes that don't even have Wi-Fi to be able to be here and like make sure that the interests of their communities were being heard and integrated into the final negotiations. And so to see, you know, such watered down language is really disheartening, like knowing that there are people who are like literally suffering right now and sacrificing their, their time and their safety to be able to be here. So I don't know. I think every cop is a, um, a, an act and like a, a challenge of um, balancing good and bad and balancing um, truth and necessity. I think there's just like, yeah, I I, th- I don't think that we need to just like stop having COP. I but I think that we need to be more intentional about like how and why it's being used and like to emphasize the value of the storytelling that takes place there. With all of that in mind, can you talk a little bit more about some of the highlights and the impact of the entertainment and culture pavilion yeah. and kind of what what events or moments left you feeling really hopeful and inspired? Yeah, I think one of the most impactful things that I heard someone say about the pavilion, like someone he had just finished giving like a talk, talk back, like after his like really impactful um, short film screening um, about droughts in Peru, like in the Andes. Um, And he talked about how everyone that he talked to during COP that year had mentioned being connected to the pavilion in some way or another. And like, I mean, talk about impact I mean, for like the first year of an entity to like have that much impact is just so tremendous. But I think it really spoke to like who brought the space together, um, like how we did outreach and like why? So, I mean, so speaking to all of those three, like it was a collective of individuals who work kind of across industries, but are all really grounded in the value of storytelling, media and entertainment in climate action. And so, um, you know, we had impact strategists and people who talk about like um, climate propaganda and people who like focus on filmmaking. Um, and so it was just like such a beautiful just array of expertise um, within a very specific niche. And so, and that brought together, you know, people from all over the world, like the team, it was um, quite a challenge to do planning because like we were all in so many different time zones, but I mean, it, it all paid off because the amount of feedback that we received um, just people showcasing and highlighting and being grateful for the diversity of programming that we were able to do. Like we had over a hundred programs that happened like over the course of the, the 12 days of cop. Um, 
and that's like pretty unprecedented. And like most other pavilions were not doing that much programming, but you know, we, we made it an effort to extend um, the opportunity for as many people to be involved with the pavilion as possible. Um, and we incorporated art that was submitted from people all over the world. Um, and so every day there was new artwork being showcased um, at the pavilion. And there were just so many opportunities for like collaboration and connection and community. Um, and people, it felt like a grounding place for so many people. Like so many people would like leave, like go do their other things and then just like immediately come back to the pavilion. Because I think it was just, again, like who, who was there, like what we offered and what we created in the safe space that we created there. Um, also like the content that we were producing. I had the opportunity to moderate a discussion on, um, you know, on greenwashing in the climate movement and in climate media. I got to host a fireside chat with the U.S. EPA administrator, Michael Regan, which was really awesome. Um, and that was on kind of like justice, youth, and storytelling. And I got to invite my friend Sage Lanier to be a part of that conversation. And Sage is an incredible um, climate activist who's work is really focused on climate education and accessible climate educa- education in colleges. Um, I got to help with a screening of Youth v. Gov um, in, at COP um, and have be a part of a talkback and conversation with a, um, a lawyer based in Spain. And so we like talked about the different perspectives of like youth-led court cases and like holding the governments accountable and the right to a healthy environment and what that looks like in terms of like adding it to um, state constitutions and all of that. And so that was really exciting. Um, I loved all of the film screenings that we had, but um, some one of the most impactful parts I believe in that movie was just showing the evolution, the ebbs and flows of uh, the United States government's approaches to climate solutions and how like a, um, a surge in like oil prices or just like oil access led to a complete shift of the ways that we were like developing energy. Um, you know, there was like a, a shortage of oil and instead of like heading back toward the trajectory of like going towards renewables, we just went crazy with coal production instead. And like, you know, in the seventies and eighties, there were solar panels on the white house, like for a time, like way before the two thousands. And so, yeah, it's just like really disheartening to see the way that, um, fossil fuels have like, and the fossil fuel industry has really contributed to the way that we interact with the world and the ways that we can adapt um, to the climate crisis or the ways that we can respond to what is happening currently that's being caused by the fossil fuel industry. And we had events, um, just, just so many different types of programming. We had a fashion show, like there was just so much happening. We had a queering climate event. We had a, an event about the symbiocene. The symbiocene refers to a vision for an emerging geological age after the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is categorized by human activity having fundamentally shifted and changed the world around us on a planetary scale. The symbiocene envisions a time when humans, non-human kin, and the Earth live in symbiosis, an age where the interconnected nature of life on Earth 
leads to more sustainable ways and systems of living. I really just think that like it speaks to how we need everyone involved in this movement and like the role of media and entertainment in climate action is to normalize climate solutions and to like make, and again, is to like make all of this like work so irresistible that like people have no choice but to want to be involved. Um, And yeah, it was like really interesting to see like what that looked like and what that felt like um, in person and, you know, to see like all of the work that the team put in, like really it was worth it. Um, And to just like see the, the progress and also the growth and also our planning for next year. It's like, okay, how do we make this bigger? How do we um, strategize more intentionally? How do we create um, like end products and like white papers and things that come out of the like round table discussions that we were having at the pavilion. Um, so yeah, there's just like a lot of space for growth, but I'm just so incredibly proud of the team for like <laughs> pulling off like what we were able to accomplish. Congratulations on such a successful event. It sounds like it had really meaningful impact, yeah. which will clearly stay with all the attendees and ripple out even further through you know social media and what is shared online and yeah I think media and storytelling it's so valuable and I agree that I think there's going to be like a cultural renaissance when it comes to climate media and I think we're living in the beginning of it so I too am excited to see this continue to blossom and hopefully contribute in some way and to close to close out our conversation I will ask you what is giving you hope and joy and inspiration for the future of climate justice? Yeah. um, I'm incredibly inspired by young people. And I know that's like such a cliche thing to say, but I like, I don't know. I think this year in particular, I've just been like so excited about how like young people are just like, actually we're not, taking this anymore. And they're like actively holding the government accountable, actively protesting. I mean, the, um, the March to end fossil fuels in New York city where there were 75,000 plus attendees. I mean, that was led by high school students, you know? And I think like just the, the amount of progress and hope is just like keeping me like super inspired. I'm like, if somebody half my age or, you know, like quite some, some years younger than me is able to keep going and they have like enough strength to be able to like hold the government accountable, hold companies accountable to support boycotts, to start boycotts um, and to like really demand change and to like sue the government and do all of these things, then yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to keep going. Right. Because I, one, I want to be able to like show and, share some of the learnings that I've developed over the years, like in my activism work. And I also want to be a connecting force between like the, the older generations and like those who are now like coming up in this movement. I think one of the biggest challenges of movement building is like retaining institutional knowledge and also like sharing um, stories and sharing strategies amongst generations, because there tends to be like, generational communication divides and like ideology divides that I think um, fragment us in ways that are counterproductive. And so I feel like because I am like very deeply entrenched in the history, the learnings 
of, you know, the environmental justice movement as it started out. Um, and I was trained by a lot of the, you know, who, who are now considered quote unquote elders, which like, I don't know, I resist that term. And also just seeing the the progress that we're seeing and the ways that we are shifting towards um, a society that emphasizes and values storytelling, even though it's always been like a really effective mechanism for connection, collaboration, building empathy, sharing information, like all of this stuff, policy change. Um, I think there's a greater emphasis and understanding that that is required now. And so I'm really inspired by that as well. This work has to be grounded in love and there's so many ways for it to go awry. But like, if you're like grounded in the central idea that you are doing this work from a place of love, then I think that can like transcend the like communication barriers and like the ideology discrepancies and differences. Um, and really like make sure that we are grounded in like a common understanding that like, yeah, we are doing this work because we love this planet, because we love being able to go and see the national parks as they are. We love being able to like breathe clean air. We want the next generation to breathe cleaner air than we're breathing right now, right? And so that that requires love. And so we we have to keep operating in that in that mindset um, in order to be effective. Thank you for listening to this episode on Radical Joy and COP28 with Ariel King. For more information and resources on today's guest and the topics discussed, please check out the show notes. See you next week with another episode. And until then, be well and be joyous. Climate with Kiana is hosted and produced by me, Kiana Mashan. This episode was co-produced and edited by Lucy Little. Theme music by Colette Michon. This podcast is recorded and produced in New York City on unceded Munse Lenape land. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, leave a comment, and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. For more information about the guests and topics discussed, please visit climatewithkiana.com. 